Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to OzCastNetwork.com for details. How powerful is the Cox Network? So powerful that one day, the internet will let your doctor perform miracles from thousands of miles away. Connecting to remote operating room. Giving a whole new meaning to the term house call. Operation complete. The Cox Network. With gig speeds everywhere, it's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, bringing us closer. In Cox serviceable areas, speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms apply. Other restrictions may apply. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. I photograph what my conscience asks me to. Uh, you bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. Uh... We're going to fight for those Australians who haven't got the time to go around and get on Twitter and wear T-shirts. I will not be lectured about sexism and misogyny by this man. I will not. G'day and welcome to The Curve, the podcast that looks at culture from all around the world. My name's Andrew Pearce, and this podcast is proudly recorded in the lands of the Wajak people of Perth region, and to pay respects to the elders both past, present, and emerging. On this particular episode, I catch up with director Judith Ehrlich, whose new film, The Boys Who Said No, is screening via the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival at the moment. This is a really fascinating documentary that looks at the uh, the way that protests around the Vietnam era helped change America as a whole and changed the way that soldiers were conscripted to fight in the war, a very needless war as well. A lot of the time, uh, the soldiers at that period of time were just dragged up out of nowhere and pushed out into the war. They had no choice. There was no volunteering. There was no uh, signing up or anything like that. It was basically you, man, are going to fight in this war. And this is a documentary about how that took place and how it stopped as well and the people that said no we're not going to stand for this anymore at all i really enjoyed this interview uh it's it covers a lot of different things and it covers a lot of different things about judith's work as well she's previously made a really fascinating documentary that i highly recommend seeking out called most dangerous man in america uh it was a really brilliant film um that came out uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, I, I highly recommend seeking that out. And I also highly recommend seeking out The Boys Who Said No, which, as I mentioned, is screening via Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. Let's have a listen to the trailer and we'll be jumping into the interview in a moment. We are going to win. We are fighting a war. I'm convinced that it is one of the most unjust wars that has ever been fought the history of the world. The war they were asking us to fight bore no resemblance to what I thought Americans were supposed to do. My conscience won't let me go shoot my brother, a big powerful America, and shoot them for what? They never called me nigger. We have chosen to be powerless criminals in a time of criminal power. Evil is a participatory phenomenon, and it counts on participation in order to be successful. And the first option you have is withdrawing your participation. And from there, it's all liberation, whatever the cost. There's something happening here 
In less than two years, 1,400 young men have been convicted of violating the Selective Service Act. The census had tended to be two and a half years, and he gave me three. These are our cards. You have our names. Joe Stewart, New York. Come arrest us. We ourselves actually could take the step that would bring this war to an end by refusing to go, just refusing to cooperate. I made the decision to return my draft card. So, so are you always based in Australia now, or do you go I back in? Am, well, I appear to be at the moment. I mean, <laughs> I'm not going to get to go home for a year and a half. Oh, no. They said no, uh, now, I don't know if that includes American citizens going home. It said no travel to the U.S. Like, I don't know if that just meant for holidays. But they said not till late 2021 was the estimate from the government. I know. So my son will be an old man by the time I get back there. <laughs> no, I mean, it's got to be hard to be. Yeah. It's got to be hard well, to be. Well, I'm glad um, to be here. Yeah, yeah. As long as we're looking after you okay and all this kind of stuff, um, that's Oh, no, it's thing. great being here. I just feel bad, guilty, sort of, that, you know, what the mess that everything's in at home is just terrible. Oh, gosh. So I, I have, usually I go back and forth about three times a year, and I spend about half time here and half time there. Okay. But um, yeah. but that's actually kind of a relief because, oh, I can't go. I don't have to be planning my next trip every minute. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. So it's uh, um, kind of pleasant, and I'm very happy here. So it's, you know, it's fine. It's well, that's fine. good. Some, yeah, and, and it's not like there's much I can do there anyway since, you know, everything's shut down. And in a state of chaos, I see the numbers of COVID cases there and here and just go, oh, my God, it's really I know. Like, shocking. Yeah. On there. You know, and a nutcase running the government just, you know. Oh gosh, is that too? It just seems seems to be no um, no further end of, of of chaos and madness and all this kind of stuff. No, not at all. It's quite disturbing, and it's you know it's funny for a while, like five minutes, and then and then from there on, it's been like, what is going on here? How can this be happening? I know every but time. We'll see. Yeah, that's one of the things which I find is I wake up in the morning and. You know, you'll go to bed and you'll be like the other side of the world is waking up and living their day. And you just kind of you can't help but have your mind kind of flitter off to them and go, what kind of chaos am I going to wake up to in the morning? And I know that even though he's, you know, up at like two o'clock in the morning and tweeting, it's still just uh, I don't know. <laughs> it's madness. It's madness. Yeah. I know. It is really madness, and I, it was rather the thing with the um, TikTok and K-pop kids this week was pretty fun. I have to say, I do enjoy that. That was one of the only really highlights of the American news cycle. It was like really they got away with that. That was extremely cool. But we'll see. I mean, you know, it's just been tough, and the, the numbers the numbers are startling. What was I looking at this morning? Thirty two hundred cases. A day now? Yeah. Is it in the U.S. or was that just in Texas? I can't remember. It was just, you know, so out of control. I look at it and I think, oh, they're panicking because there's 25 cases in Victoria. And I'm thinking, 25? That's nothing. <laughs> well, anyway, it's good. Well, I'm glad they see this country is certainly dealing with it much, much, much better than the U.S. is. 
Yeah, yeah, it certainly is. I mean, it's it's devastating all around. It's just a it's just a horrible thing. But um, on the same hand, we have people who are out there, you know, protesting for Black Lives Matter organizations and things like that. And I went to a rally here in Perth, and um, it was quite interesting to see how well the social distancing was implemented there. People were spaced out. There was, oh, really? an, yeah, yeah. I was really impressed. It was um, it was quite something, yeah. My son's been in uh, organizing these uh, bike rallies with ten thousand people in New York City, going to you know closing Times Square and going through the middle of the city with ten thousand bikes. I love it. But I thought now bike—that's a great way to keep your distance. You can't really get too close on a bike. So he's doing these these big sound systems for the. On, tra- on bike trailer, on a bike trailer, so that's fun. But um, no, it's it's uh, it's really interesting. There were thirty thousand people out in Brisbane, what three weeks ago, three Sundays ago. It's the biggest rally since no, since maybe the Iraq War, maybe the beginning of the Iraq War. I think it was one that big. But it's been um, yeah, and ongoing. What's what I think is interesting about what's going on right now and how it relates to the film is that I think there's a sense of it's not a one-time thing. It's going to be an ongoing to make a difference and it's got to be continuous and it's got to be, you know, the powers that be have to know you're not going away. And that is clearly what those guys did, you know, from 1967 till 73, they were out there just, you know, not nonstop. And it took that to turn it around. I think that's, it's not a hit and run thing. It's like a long-term commitment to, putting yourself on the line as the civil rights movement did. It took a long time. It took a lot of bodies. It took a lot of people being willing to sacrifice. And it feels like that's the, that feels like the mood now, you know, people are kind of going, okay, I'll be. And also I was so impressed with the, not that I, I don't know if I got all the news fully from here, but I do read the times every day and I read the New Yorkers articles in the nation, but um I got the impression that the um, looting, which only lasted like a couple days, was really stopped by the nonviolent activists who came in and just basically said, "No, this isn't going to work. It's not. You know, it's not going to get us anywhere." And the police, as as it says in the film, the police know how to deal with violence, and they don't really know how to deal with nonviolence. They, you know, they will immediately respond to it as if it is violence, but after it doesn't last because they get such bad press if they keep doing that so you know i think that that really did turn it around quickly yeah Yeah. i mean i certainly saw videos of 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 people who uh were you know the protesters who were out there and and they were filming people who were just being opportunistic in in their looting and being like great i can go and loot this store and under the guise that it's you know under anarchy or something like that and they were going up and saying no this is not what we're about we are not about this we're about being peaceful and and patient and just knowing that we are here voicing our concern and and our anger and frustration with the system and that works you know as as you show in your film it works it works it may take a lot of time and it may take a lot of um you know, uh, sacrifices and losses and things like that, but change does come, uh, which I think is is encouraging to see. And looking back at, you know, the the way that the Vietnam War was changed, well, changed the the, the way America 
uh, enacted wars and uh, way the world saw wars as well. Uh, so much changed in that era. And um, I think I was reading something. Uh, this is probably a tribute to, to a famous person, so I, I do apologize for mucking this up. But I was reading that sometimes, you know, uh, decades go by and nothing happens. And then days go by and decades happen within days. No, I haven't heard that, but that's a great, it's really true. I mean, because you feel like that's the era we're in right now. It's like, what, you know, there's so much being thrown at people. I mean, you've got COVID, you've got this pandemic and unprecedented. you know, Dan, for people to actually behave civilly and, and have the common interest at heart, which isn't working so well in the U.S., but it seems to be working quite well here. Um, and then you've got this, uh, you know, just out police violence and in a very organized and orderly way, speaking out, you know, speaking truth to power, as the Quakers say. You know, I think there's, um, that really seems to be, and it's building and not going away, which is great. And that's been that's been true actually here in Brisbane. Um, there's been uh, protests against these uh, uh, what do you call it? Uh, refugees who are being shipped. They want to ship that out, right? And they've been protests every night, and uh, it's ongoing. It's just every day at five o'clock or four o'clock. I guess they gather, and my partner's daughter is one of the leaders of it, and and it's just like you know, it's not going away. They're not going away. They come out every day, and it just keeps going. And who knows what's going to happen? But I think that kind of committing yourself long term is what made that organization, made that movement work. And knowing that you have to have a strategy and you have to do it in a systematic way, or it's just going to you know. And and I think. People are, I see her out there now here in Brisbane using exactly the same techniques they used and having been trained in nonviolent civil disobedience. And it's like, it's a, you know, it's, it's a real thing. <laughs> it's a real thing that actually works. If you know how to do it and take it seriously and sort of follow the lead of those who came before you. So, you know, I mean, that's what's exciting about getting this film out now because so much of what it's about is about people standing on each other's shoulders. And I, I, I went into this film being, having been through this period myself. I mean, I was in Berkeley in the sixties. I was on strike for months and months and months and, you know, tear gassed dozens of times. And, you know, I was in the middle of all this. And then I, um, what was amazing to me was I didn't register. I mean, I knew people who had been in the civil rights movement. I, you know, I was, that was a thing that I was very aware of, but I didn't make the connection between the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement until I started doing more research on this film. And, you know, I think it's um, a gap that really most Americans are not aware of, that there was such a close connection that the leadership of this movement were trained by the leadership, by the their experience going south in 64 to do voter registration, which uh, a number of my friends were involved in that. But I never made the connection between that and the anti-war movement and how really pivotal that um, connection was and that these um, techniques were actually learned by from the folks in the civil rights movement who really took them under their wing and taught them how it worked. And that, I think, is a really exciting part of this film is to see that connection and to see that um, 
that transition from civil rights movement to, to um, anti-war movement and that that those lessons are you know it's a good time to keep those in mind because we're going to need them again we oh, definitely them. yeah I, when I watched The Boys Who Said No, I watched it a couple of days after I watched um, Spike Lee's new film, oh, Defy Blood. I've seen that. Yes, I'm dying to see it. I'll and, see it when I go back to the city. <laughs> yeah, yes. it's, it, it is a great film. I mean, he's a great filmmaker, but uh, it, it's a really applicable uh, comparison piece because, you know, that his film is obviously about what's going on in the Vietnam War and and the black soldiers who were sent there without a choice and, and all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, the, the, the fight, the battle that they had to go into that they didn't want to be there and they were losing lives for no reason whatsoever. And then your film helps color in the other side of what is going on back at home and the protesters who were standing up and saying, this is not right. This should not be happening. And it was a perfect, it was just an accidental uh, kind of watching on my behalf, but it helped inform me of an era which uh, I'm mostly ignorant about because it's American history. And, and while I too try and um, engage in as much American history as possible, there is there is so much history around the world that it's it's sometimes a little bit hard. But that's why I like films like this because it informs you know the history of protesting. It informs the po- the importance of protesting and the nonviolence and things like that. And Certainly from my perspective in Australia, looking at the protests that have taken place in the past few years, Extinction Rebellion, Black Lives Matter, and um, all kinds of different protests. And I can, there's a lineage of learning how to uh, work and operate within a protest peacefully uh, to stop violence occurring and to, to you know, hopefully um not have police uh, be aggressive or attacking. And so I want to say thank you for that because that was, it's nice to have uh, an, you know, an injection of information and uh, remind you of, of history and the importance of history and and the documentation of history too, because um, we can only know where we're going forward by looking backwards. And that's really important. Um, Yeah. So thank you very much for that. And yeah, I, I definitely recommend to five bloods. It's a, it's fantastic. It's it's hard to watch because it's um, you know, he does that kind of film, but it's uh, it's important filmmaking, and it's important yeah, storytelling. Yeah. yeah, that's that's great. I just had seen, I saw the four little girls again not too long ago, which I loved. Um, but this is a feature. The one this um, the four bloods is a feature film. It's not a doc. I mean, he's he's one of the few who go back and forth, but um, yeah, but his work is wonderful. Oh, that's, I look forward to it. I know it's on the top of my list, but I haven't gotten to it yet. Oh, good. Yes, go ahead. I'm curious, uh, obviously you've, you've, as you've just mentioned, you've had an, uh, like, protesting and and being uh, involved in activism has been a, a major part of your life. What was the kind of kernel of um, what was the initial uh, moment that you realized that this was going to be something that you needed to engage in within your life? Why do I think I've never thought about that? Let me see. What was it? <laughs> um, you know, I part of it was, um, well, just being in Berkeley when I was and being, well, I started, you know, I, I, it was a moment. I started college in 1966. It was like things were just, you know, really 
getting hot and bothered and you know there was a lot of protests going on and the war was um and you know and all the people were being drafted all my high school class uh 12 of my uh, 12 guys I knew well were killed in Vietnam from my high school class so it was very real to me it wasn't like you know it was it was there it was like affecting our lives it was you know we were we were the cannon fodder class <laughs> that really um got eaten up by the war and and continued to get eaten up by the war for a number of years and I also think that you know I grew up in a family my dad was from a religious Jewish family and my mother was a Irish Catholic and there was something about being outsiders which we were to both our families and to being you know um that sort of a sense of always being um other in a way that that always you know and and also my father was a real he really got social justice and I just uh, you know I think that always influenced everybody in my family really have been active are activists of some kind not all of them but my sisters are and um and I think that that did influence all of us, that sense of standing up to something if you know it's wrong. And that certainly did influence me. And then and every opportunity in the world appeared for me <laughs> being in Berkeley in the 60s. So it was a great um, time to be growing up and to be, um, you know, and protest was just part of the, part of the, yeah in the water at that point you know we were all not all involved but lots of lots of people participated and it was you know it was part of the my education was and i was i studied political science political theory so my professors were all there's that clip when the um in at which is at uh the greek theater at uc and uh, it's my professor who's the one who stands up and says, we're going to, you know, from now on, this university is closing down and we're just going to be, um, you know, study the Vietnam War and, and protest. And, and that was my, that was my professor and very big influence on me. And I was so excited when I found that footage. I also found some footage of my boyfriend from college being thrown down some steps in San Francisco at City Hall by the police. And I was like, oh, <laughs> Steve. I mean, there was a lot of this stuff that my editor thinks I'm a historical character, I'm afraid, because I just would, so much of it was familiar to me, so much of that footage. Not that I was everywhere, you know, but I was familiar with a lot of them locations and settings and events so that made it easier and, and um you know it's a, this kind of film there's just so much digging you have to do and being familiar with the period really helped I think well that's what I was going to say is surely being part of it helped make it easier to kind of know what elements needed to be within the film and know also what the questions that you need to ask or to explore with the the protesters who you've got in the film, it would have made that a little bit easier rather than uh, somebody who might have been looking back without having been part of that particular era. There's that that element of intimacy that and, and understanding that, that comes with having been there. Um, how important is that for you as a filmmaker? To it, Does it matter to have been part of a movement or can you still obtain the kind of same information but from objective manner? 
You can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the thing I, this, in a way, this film is sort of the last of a triptych that I've been making for 20 years. The first one was about World War II conscientious objectors and people who refused to fight in World War II, both legally as conscientious objectors and illegally as resistors who went to prison. Also a much smaller group of people, 4,000 versus 40,000 in the Vietnam War. Um, and then the second one about Daniel Ellsberg and the Pentagon Papers, who also appears in this film, who's a care, you know, who stood up against the war and was a war planner who jumped the fence. So a very different kind of story. Um, and then and that's an excellent film, by the way. I remember oh, seeing it back when it first came out and just being, uh, you know, it. I, I watched it alongside the. Um, sorry to inter- interrupt you, but I just. Oh, uh, yeah, I, I watched that. I remember watching that alongside. Um, Errol Morris's the, the Fog of War and just being like, there was oh, so much yes. I didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> there was Actually, just so we were, much I didn't know. <laughs> we were yeah. competing with Errol Morris to get that film. And yeah. um, he wanted to make the film on Dan too. And then he backed off. And hey, I would have chosen Errol Morris too if I were Dan. Uh, but he said, but Errol Morris decided that he wanted to make a feature, which he never did uh, on Dan. And he backed off and let us have, there were four filmmakers competing to get that film and we managed to to well I knew I knew Patricia a bit and you know and she ended up helping us get um make the cut and and they were very happy with the film so I didn't I don't feel guilty about <laughs> getting in there but um anyway it was uh yeah the, Aaron Morris was one of my and I totally admire his work especially he's a master of recreations I could never compete with him on that but um yeah he's a very good filmmaker and it's a very it's almost too similar to Fog of War for him to make that film and you know make enough of a break because there's so much overlap in the stories um a lot of a lot of the same same period a lot of the same i mean dan worked for for uh, mcnamara you know so it's really pretty close so i think it was good he didn't do it <laughs> i'm really happy he didn't i'm glad we did yeah anyway, yeah so, it's a great yeah, film yeah, yeah yeah thank you it was really a pleasure and dan and i are still really close and he's a uh, uh, yeah there he amazing he's still at it 87 and never stops you know he's just like become the godfather of whistleblowers and and in the same way that when we did that film and we came out in the road um while i was here in uh at the sydney film festival uh first time i came to australia he um julian assange uh, released the the secret released the the uh, collateral murder video while I was here and it was just like oh this is the first whistleblower public whistleblower since Dan Ellsberg and it had been 40 years and now this is all happening right when we're releasing this film and there hasn't really been any you know there's been certainly yeah ex- um, extinction rebellion you know there have been events but there haven't been this long obvious looks like it's going to actually make a difference and people are going to keep at it that hasn't happened in 50 years really at this the extent that this is happening now so it's something i'm pretty excellent about being in the right place at the right time with this film which we weren't you know it felt like when we put out dan's film it was like this is history nobody cares about whistleblowers there hasn't been one and now it's like god oh, this is history nobody cares about protest and um dissent you know dissent and um it's here. So we're really, really, really lucky to be in the right, you know, have this coming out at the right time. So it doesn't feel like just ancient history. Well, it's, I mean, and, and it's not ancient history. Like it's, it, it, 
I know for a lot of people, it's it might feel like a long time ago, but forty years is not that far ago. And you know, as as we see, there are so many people who are still alive talking about what went on. And it's great that they are sharing their stories and you know sharing their part of history because it's important to know. Again, repeating myself, but it's important to know where we've come from, to know where we're going. But it's also important to know, like, how difficult change can be over time. And while um, conscription and, and sending people off to war just willy-nilly was kind of, uh, had had stopped, there is still, I mean, in Australia, there was an announcement, what, I think it was like, $200 billion or $20 billion. Uh, I'm getting the figure mixed up, but we decided, oh, we're going to just, we've got a recession coming up, but we're going to push billions of dollars into defense. And it's like, okay, are we, is anything actually changing? Is anything, um, you know, being actually changed with the way that we engage with wars? And uh, it's sad because we, we still lose so many lives. And unfortunately in the countries around the world, as, as we see in, in your film, there are so many lives, uh, needless lives uh, in those countries lost. So many citizens who didn't even want to be part of, you know, didn't ask to be part of this and their lives are lost. And hopefully through activists like shown in your film, it's, you know, more change can occur, but we need, I don't know. I don't know how to enact further change, but protesting is a major aspect of getting out into the streets and um, voicing your anger and frustration and, and disgust about it. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and I think the whole, when, when you sort of strip down what's, what's um, at the root of what we're seeing right now, it's really a protest against unnecessary violence on the part of the police. And if we can kind of translate that into, well, you know, here's the biggest military in the world, in the U.S., and completely overblown, completely bloated and unnecessary, and we have so many social needs and people, you know, are in desperate need for basic wage and basic, you know, medical care and all the things that, you know, a lot of things that, that you have here that we don't have there. Um, and we're wasting this huge, you know, 40% of our tax dollar last time I looked on defense and it's completely unnecessary. I mean, our, our armaments are bigger than the whole rest of the world put together. It's completely out of proportion. And it's like, how much control do these arms dealers have in Congress and have over, you know, how our money is spent? And, you know, it just seems like it's so misguided and for all the wrong reasons. And, and it, it, hopefully this idea of not unnecessary violence could spread to to that issue as well, and to, and to the threat of nuclear war, which of course hangs over us all every day and, and people ignore. But, um, you know, Dan's been on this and wrote a recent book on um, the threat of nuclear war from his experience as a nuclear war planner and, you know, what he saw happening then and how it relates to what continues to happen. So, you know, it's really um, pretty frightening and, and all those, yeah, yeah, it, whether whether it's going to make the leap to questioning the expenses of, of the defense of defense worldwide, I don't know, but it sure well, seems like it could. Yeah, yeah, and that's what I was I was going to ask: is do you see there might be a connection with the the defund the police movement in America with yeah. 
reducing the military spending as well. It seems as an outsider that they're almost entwined, connected, like the the guns and the, the armament that the police have, it, they look no different than soldiers. It's insane. Yeah. Barbara Lee, who's my local congresswoman in um, Berkeley, she is calling for that. And she's got some, she's the only one to vote against the Iraq war. She's been a stalwart, you know, peace activist throughout her career as a, what, she's been in Congress for 25 years, I think, at least. And um, she, uh, I I think there's some, there's some momentum behind it that there, and, and, you know, a lot of the, the, the issues with the policing and how it's done is after the Vietnam War, they had all this extra stuff they didn't know what to do with. And they started um, making, using military um, weaponry in the police forces in the U.S. And it only has gotten more and more so. And so, you know, they're out there in kind of armored tanks and, and uh, you know, with, with the military trappings. And, you know, the other, what, what happened a couple of weeks ago when the um, National Guard came in and started, like, acting like they were fighting a foreign force uh, with people in District of Columbia, which was their neighborhood. I mean, they were local people from that area who are in the militia and the National Guard. And, um, it's, you know, they've become like a military force, the police force. There's very little distinction, and that's that. And maybe I think you're making a really good point. That could be, if people can see that connection, maybe they can also see the connection to the unnecessary. You know, if we can defund the police, why not defund the military? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's a few yeah. groups really focusing on that, but they're pretty small. Code Pink is the most active one, and there's a few others. But um, yeah, definitely, uh, the peace movement's been very um, skeletal for the past several decades, and I think this might just, you know, be the push forward to see that it comes back. Yeah, and and certainly, um, you know, if if people can financially support them, that that's good. And um, because this is a global movement, you know, the changes that occur in America will ideally influence changes around the world. Um, and, you know, in Australia, at least um, for Indigenous Australians, hopefully there there might be some actual genuine change uh, for the way they're treated by police and things like that and fewer deaths in custody. Um, I've, I've taken up a lot of your time and I, I really appreciate this discussion it's it's been really interesting and informative just like the film is itself it's it's uh, you know as we've mentioned it's coming at a, a really important valuable time and for you know having to be able to reflect on the past and and seeing what's currently going on um i'm curious uh for you obviously uh this is going to be screening at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival. What does it mean to be part of a festival like that and, and being able to get your film out into uh, the homes of people around Australia? Well, you know, it's so interesting. It's such an odd time to be releasing a film. And um, if if the times weren't as they are and with it feeling like this is the time to get this film out, I think I'd just sit on it for a year and see what happens and release it in a year. Um, when theaters are back and things are more back to normal. I was in a webinar yesterday where everyone was going, I'm not going to release my film now. It's, you know, it's, um, it's very interesting because, you know, it's just the new world and it's certainly not the same releasing to a 
virtual film festival than it is sitting being in a theater with live bodies watching your film with them and getting people's responses and the pleasure of of seeing people respond but um but i think it's a it's it's wonderful that um it might be you know i mean i think there's elements of it that are big plus and a lot more people could can see these films and how many people get to go to film festivals it's a tiny little minority and i think you know as we're moving into more of our theatrical experience being online um that that's that's fine you know we're probably gonna see it but it's just hard to get used to it at the moment and think of like this isn't a film festival <laughs> just putting a, putting my doc up online and people are gonna watch it in their living rooms that's not the festival but um what they're doing i think it's really smart and the people at melbourne doc festival seem really like a together group and um they're Releasing it now online on it's July first, isn't it? I meant to go back and look. I was trying to July first, right? And um, then uh, then the hope is and the plan is that in December they'll actually do screenings at the Nova in Melbourne. And and they've invited us to that. So that, you know, so it's nice to say, oh well, and also it helps us because it doesn't interrupt with our uh, international premieres in the U.S. because this is geo-blocked and the numbers are capped and they're doing everything to make it very secure because that's the tricky part too. It's like, you know, the last time I made a film, we made 12 35 millimeter prints of it, which cost um, fifty thousand dollars. You know, and we had to, and these big cans. <laughs> went out to the theaters and it's it started going digital by the by you know halfway into that first six months of it we we wouldn't change to digital and the theaters were all at that point just transferring to digital but um but it's a whole different world now it's now we don't even have to make a dcp i mean we're just putting it you know online and um that's a very different world than we were in you know five years ago to not even do that so it's 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 um everything's new you know everything's experimental we'll see how it goes i think um i think there's adaptations that are going to be made but in the end we're going to see a very different kind of theater experience and you know whether the theaters are going to come back and the way they were if they're ever going to come back the way they were i don't see the big multiplexes packing people in um anytime soon and whether they can survive out of being out of business for so long i don't know i mean it's going to be a really different um, experience for theatrical presenters. And yeah. I mean, but, we've already had a cinema close here in Perth, and um, yeah, yeah, and I imagine fun. that's going to happen more. Uh, it's a it's an independent one. It's a palace cinema, but um, it's been around for decades. Oh, that's and, too bad. I'm afraid it's the independent ones that are going to go, and not the multiplexes. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I wouldn't miss the multiplexes myself. No, same. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I like I like some of the films, but I much prefer the the independent ones. The people that run it, you know, and the vibe and the feeling and all this kind of stuff. There's yeah. a there's a mood yeah. to it that you don't get at the multiplex. Yeah, is Perth yeah. a good city for theater? I mean, you're so far from everything. I would think you'd have a pretty lively theater um, scene. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, to an extent. Um, we we get, I think, about 75% of the content that Eastern States does. Um, and depending on um, what's going on at Sydney Film Festival and Melbourne Film Festival, and uh, for live theatre as well, depending on what's going on there, often we won't get some of the stuff 
that's screened there or shown there because uh, they have exclusives and things like that. So we just have to wait. We we mark it on our calendar as to being like, that sounds really good and I'll just have to wait until it comes on demand. Um, do you so, do all, is that your thing? It's film review or do you do other things as well? Uh, I do a whole bunch of different things. So the main aspect of the website is about culture uh, and my main keen interest is uh, film specifically, but on the same hand, I've found specifically through working with um, the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival for the past few years that it's, um, you know, while I, I do get to talk about the films, discussions like this that we've had today is almost feels less about the film and it's more about movements and change and and society as a whole and that really interests me because it's a discussion which I think needs to be had uh, and if we can do it through the avenue of films then that's perfect Uh, and certainly over the past six months I've had discussions with people I would not have expected to talk with simply because of um, either a film or tv or something like that and that's I think is important that's that's kind of my passion uh and and what drives me so uh hopefully you know I can open up people's eyes to history or current changes or movements that they don't they're not aware of or or um things like that uh through the interviews that I do and the discussions that I I have but yeah because I think that that is like that's the the end goal of this isn't it to make an impact and to you know, change people's minds. And um, I, one thing I am very proud of is that um, Edward Snowden did what he did because of seeing our film, The Most Dangerous Man. I mean, it was that was the final straw for him. And he, he decided to release the secrets he had. So, and he, which he said in public a lot to Dan and they've become very close and supportive. Dan's been very supportive. And um, it's, yeah, it's, I think that kind of feeling like, oh, you know, it's, it is, I mean, this film is about individuals who are willing to stand up and take the, you know, and um, suffer the consequences. And it is, you know, I think those models really, you hope you get to somebody who's the next one to stand up, you know, and, and may have been inspired by it. And That was director Judith Ehrlich talking about her documentary, The Boys Who Said No, which is screening via Melbourne Documentary Film Festival right now, mdff.org.au. I highly recommend heading over and checking this one out. It's really important that we understand the breadth of what protests have done throughout history and the changes that they have helped create, especially at this time when Black Lives Matter movement is... uh, taking the world by storm as it should do and recognizing the value and the importance of black lives and the changes that need to happen to help make uh, deaths in custody, uh, police violence and all of these terrible injustices against black people around the world stop. That is the history of a film like The Boys Who Said No where these men stood up and said no we're not going out to war to fight in a needless war and change happened with the black lives matter movement persistence and protesting and loud voices will encourage change and i think that's what this documentary really shows the most and this that discussion i've just had with judith really shows the most as well that there is an understanding and the need to to look back at history and to appreciate where we've been and where we're going and 
I really enjoyed this one, kind of fascinating, uh, and I really enjoyed the discussion. I'm grateful that I had the chance to talk to somebody as wonderful as Judith is. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the film and check it out. Again, Melbourne Documentary Film Festival is where you can see it. Make sure to head over to the website as well, thecurb.com.au, to check out other interviews and reviews and, and things like that. Uh, and follow us on social media, the Curb AU, on both Facebook and on Twitter. And if you want to go the extra step, then head over to patreon.com forward slash the curb AU to help support the website from as little as a dollar a month. Thank you all people. Uh, stay safe and kind and look after each other and make sure to wear a mask when you head out and social distance and all that kind of stuff. Be good to each other. I'll see you in the next one. Love this podcast? Support it and sponsor today. Simply head to oscastnetwork.com for details.